here after known as Slippery Psalm 73. Say that seven times quickly. All right, it's going to be on the screen. Yes, there it is. All right, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, nothing, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we remember that you're our anchor, you're our rock, you're our solid ground, and we need you to be this because so much of our life is shifting, and we are weak, and we doubt. Our Father, strengthen our faith. Answer our questions. May you be our answer, and please help us to be honest and with you honest with ourselves. We thank you for this psalm. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Doubt. You know what doubt is, don't you? Yes? No? Not sure? Hard to be certain? 
doubt. Over January, we're, dis- we're diving into the Psalms, the songs of experience to learn how to relate to God in life's different experiences, sickness, guilt, and today, doubt. The truth is that every Christian at some time or other questions their faith because there's much in this world and in our lives that can seemingly contradict a very sort of breezy confidence in God. Disasters, wars, sickness, um, miseries, sufferings of a thousand kinds. Every honest Christian feels the same silent question, how can a good God allow that? Now, of course, we know the wider story of the Bible. We know that the best is yet to come. We know we're not in heaven yet. We're in a fallen world. And right now, we live in the gap between what's promised and the reality we experience. We're not in heaven yet. We are part of the creation that groans. And the Lord causes us, calls us to exercise active faith in him as we walk with him now. But it's not always easy. Each of us have times, some of us have many times, some of us have extended times when we feel this big disconnect between what we know of God, we know his love for us, his care for us, his compassion towards us. We feel a disconnect between what we know and what we can experience because life can be difficult. Now, real faith, if it's going to survive, has to face up to this. Real faith cannot not confront our questions as we live in this gap between what's promised and what's real in our experience. So maybe that's what the poet Tennyson meant when he said that there, that there was more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. You know, you can stand there like we did and, or sit there and we can say the creeds, which is helpful for our memory of what we believe, but do we experience it as true? Okay. Contrary to what we may think, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. We get it confused because sometimes the Bible uses the word doubt when it means unbelief, like in James chapter one. James one verse six says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. When James uses that word doubt, he's really speaking of unbelief. Okay, this is illustrated, uh, you might remember that, you know, the preamble to the Christmas story in Luke chapter one, uh, when the angel Gabriel comes and delivers a message to Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, and then to Mary. And to both Zachariah and to Mary, he gives news of a miraculous birth that will come in their family. Right, virgin birth and then birth to a a woman who's past childbearing age. So both, he says, here's a wonderful news announcement, both miraculous announcements, and both receive these announcements, but both ask the same question, how can this be? Zechariah says that, Mary says that. But if you know the story, Zachariah is judged because of his response, whereas Mary is commended. So there must be a difference in their response. Both seem to express doubt, but is there one that's sort of acceptable to God and one that's not acceptable? Well, it comes out in the story. Um, 
And you, you see, if you read it closely, Zachariah's doubt was that he disbelieved what the angel said. Mary didn't disbelieve it, but she did wonder about the pragmatics. I mean, she was a virgin. How is this going to happen? <laughs> it was more the practicalities. She still accepted the angel's word to her. She believed the angel's word. So the doubt that the Bible um, condemns is a refusal to believe. A bit like Thomas, he doubted Jesus' words to him that he would rise again. He doubted the word of the apostles to him or his, his other disciples that they had seen Jesus. He refused to believe that word to which Jesus said, stop doubting, believe. The doubting that believes, but yet still has room to ask questions, even serious questions, that's fine. In fact, that's normal. In fact, that's faith. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you think about it, doubt is something only a believer can experience. You can only doubt what you believe, right? You have to believe it to doubt it in the first place. What is the book of Job if it isn't the story of a believer wrestling with doubt? Job didn't cease to be a believer in his long struggle, quite the opposite. The struggles he had with doubt in the end actually forged his faith stronger. But there's a potential danger in doubting. Doubt, let me get it right. Doubt is to unbelief what temptation is to sin. I'll say that again. Doubt is to unbelief what temptation is to sin. Experiencing temptation itself is not sinful, but yielding to temptation is. Experiencing doubt isn't unbelief, but yielding to doubt is unbelief. Just as temptation can lead to sin, if we give ourselves to it, so to doubt can lead to unbelief if we give ourselves to it. So you see the question we're left with, given doubt is going to come, we all experience it, how do you grow in faith through doubt instead of drifting into unbelief? Okay. Well, Psalm 73 really helps. This psalm is a psalm about doubt. Now, that itself, just think about that, that very fact should encourage you if you've ever doubted. Here is a part of the Bible which explores this. It's in the Bible. This is God's word to you if you've doubted. It's also a psalm about likely doubt, realistic doubt. It's not that the psalmist suddenly wakes up and discovers, oh, I'm an atheist, I've always been an atheist. It's, he doesn't deny God, it, he, what he denies or, or is wrestling with is a, a different aspects of God's character. He, he doubts God's goodness to him. And that's a doubt that we're much more likely to go through rather than just sort of waking up and deciding God never existed at all. So it's about likely doubt. And it, the psalmist, whose name was Asaph, he's a mainstream believer. Uh, we're told in verse zero that he was a temple singer. He's a worship leader. Oh, sorry, we know from other psalms he wrote um, that that's true. And yet his doubts brought him to a point of crisis where he teetered on falling into unbelief but then was turned from unbelief to belief. So it's a very helpful psalm. 
The shape of the psalm is very easy to follow. It's got three sections, each beginning with the word surely. And each of those statements reveals different conclusions that Asaph has come to. It's a journey for him. He changes his conclusions. So the first section starts with a statement of belief. This is his creed. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is Asaph's doctrinal statement. And maybe you're here, maybe you can say the creed, which we did today. You've got statements you believe. But that doesn't mean that you won't ever doubt. Because in the first section, Asaph begins with a creed and then we see him going down. This is the development of his doubts. And then in verses 13 to 17, Asaph stays down in his doubt. He struggles with unbelief. This is the difficulty of doubt. But then comes a turning point, and in verses 18 to 28, we see Asaph coming up, the dissolution of doubt. So it's like this. That's the shape. Going down, staying, and then coming up. Well, the psalm opens with Asaph up. He states what he once believed, um, that he believed God is good to his children who follow him. Do you believe that? Okay. I believe God is good to his children who follow him. Well, Asaph did, and then he, he confesses something. that He hadn't always been so firm in his faith. Now, he's come back to this point, but, and he's reviewing it in, in past tense, but he, he began here. He said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped, as Caroline so wonderfully illustrated. I had nearly lost my foothold. He'd gone through this crisis. His faith had suffered real danger. He'd almost slipped, fallen. Now, what was the crisis? Verse three, he said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He couldn't shake the thought that he, him following God had been a waste of time. The thought entered his head, and it was a strong thought, that he felt gypped, ripped off. Here he was, he was Israel's worship leader. <laughs> In ministry, right? Now, he's wanting to be sincere, he's wanting to be pure in heart, not hypocritical, he's wanting to be God-honoring in everything that he does, but then what happened? He glanced sideways. And instead of looking up, he glanced sideways. He compared his lot with the lot of the wicked. In the Bible, this means those who have no regard for God, those who arrogantly live as if God doesn't exist. Asaph looked at them, he looked at the wicked, he looked at their prosperity, he looked at their strong, healthy bodies, he looks back at himself, he's envious. They have things that he doesn't have. They have health, verse four, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they have wealth, they're prosperous. This is a prosperity gospel, isn't it? But notice, a prosperity gospel not for the godly, but for the ungodly, Asaph, in contrast, he is godly, but he's not healthy, and he's not wealthy. So, we have to be skeptical when we hear promises of health and wealth, okay? Because in this case, here's an example, the opposite is true for someone who believes. It's the wicked and, and the ungodly who seem, verse, verse five, free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. 
Asaph's crisis is not so much that he sees the righteous suffering, it's that he sees the wicked prospering. Now, in fact, the word for prosperity in verse three, applied to the wicked, is the Hebrew word shalom. Their life is carefree. Their life is a life of peace without worry, in contrast to Asaph's own life. Now, life experience will tell us this isn't true for all of people who are wicked, right? <laughs> Um, But life experience will tell us that this is true for a lot of them. And I know that you know that there are people here who last year had a very hard year. These are generous people, godly people, faithful people who are walking with the Lord. They've got a proven track record. And they had a very hard year. Now sometimes at our low moments we can be tempted to ask, Has it all been worth it? I come to church, I give. I'm involved in service. I give my time, I give my money, I give myself. Has it all been worth it? Our Achilles heels are common. They tend to be our health and our wealth. The health and wealth of ourselves, the health and wealth of our families. There are godly people here who've served the Lord, they've walked with him faithfully, they've taken significant hits on both counts. And you can bear with it until you you turn your head sideways and you compare your lot to that of healthy and wealthy unbelievers. When you compare yourself like that, it can really eat you up. Now for Asaph, this, this raised a deeply disturbing problem of justice. For because of the health and wealth of the wicked, the consequences are, verse six, the wicked wear pride like a necklace and they cover themselves with violence. It gets worse. Their hearts are callous towards God and so out of their hearts come sin. Their evil imaginations have no limits, verse seven. Verse eight, they scoff, they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. The arrogance is not only directed towards people, verse nine, Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. They are an authority under themselves. There seems to be no limit to what they can do. Their power is all pervasive. My mum uh, used to work for one of Sydney's top interior decorators. Um, One of her clients she had on her phone, got a Christmas card from, was Ros Packer married to Kerry Packer, the media mogul. Hi, Roz, it's Adrian. Now, I've heard some stories about the Packers. (laughs) Um, To my knowledge, the Packers weren't Christians, certainly Kerry wasn't, he's an atheist. Uh, Mum told me the story of one time um, Kerry was driving home late at night along Monavale Road, he was hungry, he pulled in at a, a hamburger shop that was closing up. He went in and said, I want a hamburger. Sorry, kitchen's closed. I want a hamburger. Don't you know who I am? Kitchen's closed, sorry. Ah, is it now? What's he gonna do? Gets in his car, he drives down the road to the next one. I'd like a hamburger. Sure, I'll make you a hamburger. I'll give you 40,000 for that. And just make sure you tell the guy up the road. (laughs) 
They scoff, they speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. After Kerry Packer died, I watched a documentary about the influence that Kerry Packer had. In a piece on one day cricket, now Kerry, uh, if you know the history of cricket, he introduced one day cricket to the world. It was him who, who thought it up. In a piece on this, it describes the final moments of a match between England and Australia. Australia were batting. They were, were within 10 runs of England's total, one minute to go. The guy being interviewed had been sitting with Kerry Packer watching the match. It was doubtful that Australia could get over the line. Kerry looked at his lackey and he said, stop the clock. And then he said, no, don't stop it, just slow it down. And the man being interviewed said, that was Kerry Packer at his best. I thought, yes, laying claim to heaven, slowing time down with his word. Australia won. The result of power like that was evident in the documentary, verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They make documentaries about a fellow like that with his power. They give him a state-funded funeral in the Sydney Opera House. They listen to his words, verse 11. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? When Kerry Packer died the first time <laughs> on the polo field, he was revived four minutes later and he said, I've, I've discovered there was nothing on the other side, so now I know I can do what I want. When he says something like that, people listen. How can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing their wealth. Now all this leads Asaph to declare, in verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It's all been in vain. Where's the reward, God? Where's the payoff? A crisis of faith. Now, for someone like Asaph, who's Israel's singer of songs, the barb is extra sharp because he's in ministry. He's got influence, right? He says, verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. The barb was sharp on two fronts. Firstly, because of his position. People looked to him for leadership in matters of faith. And because of that, he couldn't voice his concerns out loud. He might destroy people's faith. Verse 15, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. He didn't want to do that. So he had to suffer in silence. Because of his own position in ministry, he couldn't share his concern. But that made his own personal crisis of faith particularly acute for himself. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. So that's the first barb. And secondly, he had no theological answer for this one. He said when he tried to understand it, it really troubled him. In other words, his theological grid had no room for this experience. He was the singer of Psalms, the worship leader. Now Psalm 1 promised prosperity for the righteous, not the wicked. Psalm 1 said it was the wicked that the wind would blow clean away. Well, here seems a direct contradiction of that psalm. And he has no answer until the turning point in verse 17. When he entered into the sanctuary of God, and then he understood their final destiny. 
Now, I would have loved to understand what was the realization and how did he come to have it? Was it the words of the Psalms that he heard sung when he walked into the sanctuary grounds? Was it the words of the law, the Torah, being read out? Was it a direct visitation from God himself, a revelation of some sort? Or was it just being in the building of God? Not everyone here may know, but there's a reason why cathedrals are built with such high vaulted ceilings. It is to draw the attention of everyone upward and to be awestruck so that even if you don't hear a sermon when you happen to be walking in, the building itself is meant to be a sermon which draws you up to think of God. Now we're not told, and because we're not told in the end how this happened, it's not important. What's important is what he tells us. The sure answer to his crisis. Having gone down, having stayed down, now suddenly he comes up. What he understands is the final destiny of the wicked. And when he understands this, he sees everything clearly now. He sees the wicked clearly, he sees himself clearly, he sees God clearly for the wicked. When he views them from the perspective of eternity, he realizes God has placed them on very slippery ground. Their wealth, their health, that is a slip and slide into oblivion. They are not things to rely upon. The wicked lean into these things, but as they do so, these things will break and will end up piercing them and stabbing them. God casts them down to ruin. He doesn't let them stand. In a moment, suddenly they are destroyed, swept away by terrors, as happened to Kerry Packer. Asaph realizes the wicked have no place in the scheme of eternity. He says they have as much significance as a bad dream, which sort of vanishes as soon as you awake. They are despised as fantasies, which means Psalm 1 is right, actually. The wind will blow them away. You remember that Psalm? They are like the chaff. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The way of the wicked will perish. It's true, it will all be true. So he sees the wicked clearly. He says, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and embittered and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now he sees himself clearly, you see. What was he thinking before? When his heart was grieved, when his spirit was embittered, he says, I was like an unthinking cow a brute beast before you. I wasn't enlightened. I wasn't thinking with heavenly wisdom. And yet even so in verse 23, he can look back and see that even when he was blind to God, God never left him. He was always with God. God was always holding him by his right hand, always guiding him with his counsel. And afterwards, God would take him into glory. And so now, he sees the truth about God that his sideways glances had blind him to because the wicked are blind to it as well. What does he see, this truth? He says, better than health, better than wealth, the chiefest and greatest benefit that God gives to the pure in heart is himself. He's with them. That's the best thing. Do you believe it? Asaph knows it. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing 
that I desire besides you. He's obviously in a different place now than when he began, okay? He says, my flesh and heart may fail, verse 26, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And now that Asaph sees all this clearly, there's no other conclusion he can give than what's given in verses 27 to 28. The worst thing imaginable is to be far from God as the wicked are, they will perish. God will destroy all those who are unfaithful to him. There is no greater thing, however, than to be with God, to be near him. Is that what you believe? Asaph didn't, and it was a crisis of faith. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. He went down. Now, if that's you, perhaps coming to church this morning, perhaps it's turned you around. Perhaps God this morning is bringing you up. Perhaps now you with Asaph can say verse one, your creedal statement, and you can mean it. Surely God really is good to his children who follow him. Or perhaps you identified with Asaph and after reaching the end of the psalm, you've not yet come up from the doubts, guess what, you're still down. Um, If you are, I want to tell you that Psalm 73 isn't the final word about doubt. Um, You may not know, uh, but you see it when you read through the book of Psalms, that it's divided into five smaller books. Psalm 73 is the beginning of book four, which deals with the question of doubt. So it's not the only thing that God says about doubt in the book of Psalms. Now, rather than going through every psalm in book four, which I'm tempted to do, but I resist, uh, let's just jump to the end, the conclusion, Psalm 89, the final psalm in book four, which deals with this question of doubt and the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. Psalm 89 says that the the, um, answer to the godly feeling ripped off is God himself. It begins with this massive celebration of the Lord's great love, his faithfulness, and this comes out in the psalm in the promise that God made to David to bring from his family a Messiah, a Messiah for everyone. And we think, well, that's our answer, but there's more. Halfway through Psalm 89, the psalm shifts, and suddenly God becomes very angry with his Messiah, his anointed one. He cuts short his days and the Messiah is mocked by his enemies. And when you think about it, here we see it again, the wicked prospering, the righteous suffering. But Psalm 89 says, actually, he is our answer to our doubts, Jesus Christ. You think about it. Asaph went down, he didn't stay down, he came up, okay? Jesus followed that pattern. He too went down from heaven to earth to death in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. He came up in his bodily resurrection. And ultimately, that is the answer to all your doubts about health and wealth. You will be raised from the dead. You are rich. You are healthy in him because of that promise, that sure reality more healthy, more wealthy than any wicked person could be. I'm trying to, if, if I ever doubt, if, if I do a sideways glance like Asaph, I'm trying to use that self-talk. I'm rich because I have the resurrection. That changes everything. 
Asaph said that now in the meantime his greatest benefit was the God with him, but, but for us, it's through Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, that God is with us. Do you remember his promise to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And guess what? Even if you don't feel it, that promise still stands. It's Jesus the Lord who made it. He is with you. He is with you until the end of the age. Asaph sang of God afterwards, taking him into glory. Guess what? That glory is the glory that we will share in. It is the glory that Jesus will bring when he, be, he, he comes to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Paul says, guess what? Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So you see what this means. If we get glance sideways at health and wealth, if we are tempted to feel hard done by, pity us. The wicked, they will come to nothing. There is no greater benefit than to be near God through Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us? It means that despite doubts, we can still stand and say in the creed in verse one, surely God is good to his children who walk with him. What might it mean for me when I'm tempted to look sideways? Well, I can do no better than to point you to the final verses in the psalm. They are worth meditating on. They are worth memorizing. So there's a challenge for you in the next week. Because they are gold. What they do is they give us the self-talk to address our words of doubt when they arise. So verse 25. When I feel like God's given me the short end of the stick. Here's what I need to say to myself. Whom have I in heaven but you? Say it when you doubt. When I compare my lot with others and I feel like I've been shortchanged, we can say and be reminded, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And of course, we, can, we need to remind ourselves of eternity. We need to do this. This is the realization Asaph had in the temple. Verse 27. That those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Father in heaven, may these words become ours as we meditate on them. Um, we pray that we would take this answer that you have given us from this man who experienced such doubt and that you would carry us through. You would hold us by our right hand and you would take us into glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have now a chance to come to him in faith by sharing in the Lord's Supper. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask people to come forward. Please do not come forward unless you come in faith. But if you have faith in Jesus, no matter if this is your church or not, you are welcome to come. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Thank you, CJ, together. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, 
but in your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to accept for ourselves Christ's death for us, his body broken, his blood shed, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Well, Jesus dealt with many people who experienced doubt. The father of the boy who said to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus Christ, risen Master and triumphant Lord, we come to you in sorrow for our sins and confess to you our weakness and unbelief. We have lived by our own strength and not by the power of your resurrection. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. We have lived by the light of our own eyes as faithless and not believing. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. We have lived for this world alone and doubted our home in heaven. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, help us and help us. May God our Father forgive us our sins and bring us to the fellowship of his table with his saints forever. Amen. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that in your love and mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save us. And by this offering of himself once and for all time, Jesus made the perfect, complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, satisfying your just demands in full. Jesus commanded us to remember his death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who eat and drink this bread and wine may remember his death and share in his body and blood. And we remember how on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread in his hands and he gave you thanks and broke it and gave it his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And how in the same way after the meal, Jesus took the cup in his hands and gave you thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Well, now it's time to come up and receive the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. The um, wine will be in the red cup and um, the juice will be in the clear cups. If you're gluten intolerant, please indicate that to the ushers as they come. If the service could come forward.
please come forward and if you haven't been here before, the idea is we come up these aisles, take our bread and wine and then return to our seats down that way, beginning with the front. Thank you. Of sin. 